0: Our journey began just talking about acknowledging the division, brokenness, um, not just along political lines, but really in our culture, in our context, along racial, ethnic, cultural, socioeconomic lines. And the question we've been asking is, what is the response of the church? What's the role of the church? Is there a role of the church? What is the response of Christians? What is the response of Christianity to what we see around us? And even more specific, we're asking, what's the, role of, what's the role of our church? What's our mission statement? Why are we a city within a city? What are we talking about when we say we want to be an alternate city, an alternate Chicago? And what we began to talk about, you guys, is getting the heart of what this is. Now, just real quick, you know, I had a couple of you guys come up and say, well, don't apologize for what you're saying, you know, thank you for speaking hard truth. Here's what's going through my mind. Do you know that in any typical Sunday, among us, there are non Christians, there are atheists, there are agnostics, there are people of other religious faiths, so on and so forth. There are people all over the spiritual journey who are just here saying, "I want to, I want to learn about Jesus. I want to learn about this Christian life." And, and, and for some, for some, not only is having conversation about race, ethnicity, so on and so forth, outside of the church uncomfortable. Inside the church, it's even more uncomfortable. And so, I've been like really sensitive about. Knowing that there are people on this spectrum, spiritual journey, they're like, whoa, man, I just, I just want to hear about Jesus and learn about, learn about what Christianity is and what is, what is this talk about race, ethnicity. And I'll tell you what's anchored me during those times is this, and I'll put it up on the slide if, if, it's, if it's there. The reason why we're talking about it is because at the core, at the core of the gospel is Reconciliation. At the core of the gospel, here's what I mean. At the core of the gospel is reconciliation. Reconciliation literally means to put things together, back together. Reconcile is to put broken relationships back together. And at the essence of Christianity, and if you're researching Christianity and trying to learn about what what, what Christianity is, Jesus is, at the essence of Christianity is not, is not, is not... That, that, that somehow, if you believe in Jesus, we are forgiven of our sins and we get whisked away from a broken, messed up world to wind up in eternity with God forever. That's not the essence of Christianity. That's a truncated version of Christianity. The essence of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came, died on that cross, rose again, and is in the process of reconciling you and me to God, you and me to each other, and all of creation. That's the essence of Christianity. It's this holistic gospel that says that God is about reconciliation. And the challenge for some of us is the reality, especially many of us that grew up in church, is to see ethnic and racial reconciliation not just as an add-on to the gospel. Kind of like, you know, that's what maybe good Christians do or people who are called to do it. It's not an add-on to the gospel, but it's an imperative of the gospel. That God reconciling us to Himself and God reconciling us to each other and God reconciling the entire creation, bringing healing to the creation, if that is the essence of the gospel, then it's not you and I going, Well, I have a choice, you know. I have a choice on whether I want to be reconciled with other people. I have a choice on whether I want to be engaged in the work of God in creation. It's not an add on, it's an imperative. It's an imperative. And as you saw last week in Ephesians 2, it's one of God's chief concerns in redemption. So here's the practical thing that we've been sort of uh, centering around. And that is, we must demonstrate in our lives together the work of racial reconciliation. We must demonstrate in our lives together the work of racial reconciliation. The watching world has to see among us this God doing this work. The world has to see among us, us making the invisible kingdom visible. The world must see the church and go, how is God going to heal all the mess that's out there? Oh, I know. We see it happening inside the church. We see it happening among alienated, divided people who used to hate each other, who used to not be able to get along. We see inside the church the work of God where he is restoring and healing his creation. Do you know where we get our church name from? Some of you know, some of you know not. One of the places, Ephesians 2, verse 15, where it says, His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to the cross by which he put to death as utility. God is in the process of creating one new man, one new humanity, one new human race in the church. 2,000 years ago, the outside watching world saw something happening inside the church that never seen before. People who hated each other, loving each other. Do you know in Acts chapter 11, Paul sees something that had never been seen before? When you go to a typical city in Rome, or city in the Roman Empire, here's what you saw they had walls outside the city limits, outside the city to protect them from outside invaders. But within each city, there were dividing walls. Within the city, they were dividing walls where ethnic racial groups lived within the boundaries, physical walls. Why? In that time, you could be at a marketplace and somebody could just give you a look that would be the wrong look. And that would lead to vengeance. That would lead to violence. And one and one would turn into, I kill your family. And then your family would kill my people group. And that back and forth it went. So within each of the cities, within the city, there were walls of separated people. And guess what Paul and Barnabas saw in Acts 11 when they went to the city of Antioch? They saw people coming outside of the city walls, within the city, living together. Raising children together. Marrying each other. Bearing each other. And they changed their world. The question we're asking in our church is, is that happening to us? Here's a quote. The church is made up of natural enemies. What ultimately binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've all been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for the sake of Jesus. So here's what I've been saying. Here's an acid test of whether you have been transformed by the gospel. Is there anybody in this room that you can look at and say, if not for Jesus, we wouldn't be friends. Is there anybody in this room that you could look to and say, it is only because of the gospel and Jesus and grace that we are friends because if not for the gospel and Jesus, my prejudice, my racism would keep us apart. If not for Jesus, my upbringing would keep us apart. If not for Jesus, our different political views would keep us apart. If not for Jesus... My loyalty to my in-group and my friends would keep us apart. If not for Jesus, all of these things would keep us apart. But because of Jesus, there's a level of depth in relationship here that could not be explained in any other way. Can you say that about somebody here? Secondly, here's another. Can you identify as in which you have been fundamentally changed as a direct result of your interactions with someone of different race and ethnicity and culture? I mean, come on. How deep are these relationships here? How deep are they? How deep are they? Do we need each other? Is there interdependence? How deep are these relationships within this church? Are we sharing our greatest triumphs together? Are we mourning our greatest losses together? I mean, really, how deep are they? If you're new and visitor to our church, by the way, today will be a little unusual. Um, I'm going to, in a moment, bring up a, a friend of mine and then a group of people, and today we're going to share stories. You've heard for three, four weeks theological and biblical anchors, and today I want to share stories. But one of the things that I've, I've, I've heard over and over again is, how do we do this? How? The how question is huge. I've gotten over and over again, how do we do this? But before we talk about the how and hear stories, here's what I need you to know. Our world, more than any other time I believe in history, needs the church to be the church. Did you hear what I said? Our watching world needs the church to be the church. And I say this all the time. We don't just possess the message. We are the message. We are the message. The world is watching. They're paying attention. They're looking at us. They could care less what we have to say. They hear plenty of talk, but they're watching. They're looking. We are the message. And what is the message? What is the gospel that we are showing, we are displaying by how we do life together? We are the message. They're watching us. What is the gospel according to us? What are we saying about the gospel and reconciliation as the world watches us? We are the message. We are the gospel. They're looking at us, you and me, and saying, I've heard plenty. But what's your life like? What's your life like? Let me jump right to the how. And then we're going to hear stories. The how. These are, these are just some of the things that I've gotten a lot of responses from people about how do we do this reconciliation? You're talking about deep community, but how do we do it? Let, let me start here. We start with prayer. We start with prayer. Why do we start with prayer? The miracle of reconciliation that breaks down barriers, I believe, is a supernatural work of God. I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced of it. Paul makes his case in Ephesians 2 when he says that the powers and principalities that divided you with God is the same powers and principalities that is at work in dividing people. I said this last week, and I'm glad a couple of you guys caught it. Roots of racism in this country are spiritual, not just sociological. Roots of racism and just in this country is spiritual. There are, please, folks, let's not be naive thinking that if we just learn more, have more rallies, have more conferences, if we just talk to each other more, we could solve this issue. The reason why it's so strong is because at the root of it is a stronghold. So, why is it that we approach this and almost look at prayer as the last resort? When it should be the first thing we do. We should do all of these other things, politics, social, engagement. But we're the church and we believe that this division doesn't just get healed because we talk and we do life. It's spiritual. That means we pray. By the way, for those of us that are at work and works in issues of injustice, it's astounding to me that for those of us that are at the most activist among us, neglect this as the last resort. How do you go about engaging issues of evil and injustice without fasting and praying? How do you do that? I'm reminded of one time when the disciples were trying to cast out a demon and they couldn't. Do you remember? And Jesus comes along and he says, he casts the demon out. And the subs like, "What happened?" And he says, "This kind of demon can only be cast out via prayer and fasting." Man, I tell you what: if you are working in issues of human trafficking, racism. Fair housing for all the people in this city and beyond, and all the other global issues of justice, and you are not on your knees fasting and praying. Fasting and praying. When you pray for this city, are you praying for the spiritual roots that underlie the evil and injustice among us? Listen, after church today, we're going to have a concert of prayer. We're cutting our service a little bit short. Concert of prayer, about 30, 40 minutes. And I would hope that every single one of you, unless you absolutely have to leave, would stay. Because a big part of our prayer is going to be for God to bring down division. Bring down various issues that hold us captive. Spiritual root issues. And we're going to pray against those things. First for our church, then for the city and beyond. Secondly, small groups. Small groups, so we're going to talk about this as I bring a panel of folks, and you're going to hear over and over again that the most profound, important, transformative thing in my life in terms of doing this has been being involved in a small group of people where I'm doing life with. Third, and we talk about this, worship and music. Music is so closely tied to culture and history. I'm inviting folks to go visit other churches. Go visit other churches. Pastor Angelo Thibault, who planted his glory Right now, they're primarily African American. They really want to be a diverse, multi ethnic church. Anytime you want to go visit that church, you let me know. She would love to have some of you guys come and visit and just experience a different style of worship. Here's another books, movies, and plays. And we're going to talk about some of this stuff today. For, uh, fifth, restaurants and food, intentionally eating at different restaurants, different neighborhoods. Chicago is a huge, huge, huge city for that. By the way, to engage us in more of this, uh, in I think about three, four weeks, Ashley, who works with our immigration team, they're going to have this huge sort of uh, getting more familiar with issues of immigration, but they're going to do this potluck dinner. I would hope that many of you guys would attend that as well. And then sixth, work. Some of you may have the option to make changes within your work or maybe consider another type of work that would expose you to different community, different group of people. Seven, consider relocating. Some of you guys live in a place where you're like, I am with people that are just like me, and there are people who have taken steps to go, I'm going to move into a different neighborhood, maybe a different part of this city. And eight, be prepared to fail. Um, I don't know about you, but the only way that I've been able to learn cross-cultural competencies is by failing. Can anybody else relate? Anybody else? I don't know how else to learn. Because here's the thing, if you get close enough with somebody, you're eventually going to hurt them, they're going to hurt you. It's inevitable. So if you've never failed in cross-cultural relationship, chances are you're not close enough and you're staying pretty far behind. Failure to me is the only way to best learn cross-cultural competency. Amen? Amen? I'm going to say it again. If you're in a place where you're like, I'm afraid to fail, here's the thing that's failing, because many of us hate to learn that way. We hate learning by failing, because failure hurts. You know what hurts even more? Failing people that you love and you care about. But there's no other way for us to learn. And as gospel-centered people, we don't give up, but we push forward in this journey of saying, I'm going to offend you, you're going to offend me, and we're going to have the gospel at work in our lives, but we're just going to expect that we're going to fail in this area. How to fail well? One, um, (laughs) ask questions. Given the opportunity to learn from somebody, questions aren't your best friend. Two, avoid assumptions. When you recognize you have assumptions beneath the surface, go ahead and ask questions. Three, and this is the most important, say I'm sorry a lot, a lot. Apologize for things you did, but also apologize for things you failed to do four avoid defensiveness the only way to grow in this area is to receive feedback when we offend I think welcoming feedback is absolutely critical five become a trusted person over time again I'm going into community because I just don't know any other way for us to grow in this area unless you have meaningful relationships with people where you're spending time together Um. I say it again, most of us hate the idea of failing relationally, not just because we hate learning that way, but we hate the fact that we might hurt and avenge somebody we care about. But that's so we remember the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us a reminder of who he is and what he has done for us. Uh, Today, uh, uh, here's what we're going to do I'm going to invite Scott. Come on up, Scott. Scott. And then after Scott, I'm actually going to invite a number of us uh, that belong to new community as a part of our church family. By the way, um, let me welcome Scott. <laughs> yeah. Scott and I met at Trinity, um, alma mater, um, and I, I've gotten to know Scott better over the years and he had me come and preach uh, at Trinity, um, primarily white institution about issue of race, racial reconciliation, and uh, I've got to know this brother and and have, have, have appreciated his heart for this, and, and, and the reason why I asked him to come and kind of start this, this journey of discussion and sharing stories uh, in regards to this very difficult topic is because um, during the sermon series, I've gotten the most questions from white folks in our church who say, how do you do this? All the way from, I have some folks that I'm friends with, but I have a hard time going deep, too. I never really thought about racial reconciliation as part of the gospel, and I I, I don't know exactly what that means, too. I'm struggling with guilt. I'm paralyzed with guilt. I don't think I'm a racist, but I'm paralyzed with guilt. How do I move forward from this? All the way to some people going, my issue is I feel self-righteous. I feel like I'm the white person that gets it, and I'm judgmental of all the other people who don't. All over the spectrum. So I asked God, and I said, here's a guy who I feel like is... Lived this and is trying to do this not only in his own life but also in his ministry. Real quick, so Scott works at Trinity. His background, a little bit. He was involved at Intervarsity. Has led CUP, which is Chicago Urban Project, uh, for years. Any of you guys, by the way, out there, Intervarsity folks, know Scott? Anybody? Nobody. Okay, two, two, three people. Okay. So um, we're gonna we're gonna hear a little bit from Scott, and then I'm gonna ask our church family members to come on up and join us on stage, and we'll do this sort of Q and A. Um, Scott. How has failure in this area? Failure in this area been a key component of being a Christian who's living a life committed to racial reconciliation. Sorry to just go there, but uh, I just want to kind of jump ever. in, okay? Did <laughs> you ever yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he texted me this question on the way here and I said, Peter, you hate me. Um, but, man, it's exactly the right question, and um, it's, it's a hard question. I think for a couple of things that, Peter, you've already acknowledged, um, it, it's a hard realization that my growth has come at somebody else's expense, um, which sounds a lot like white privilege. Um, you know, I've benefited from things that, uh, that someone else has because of their sufferings and their my opportunities have come with someone else's lack of opportunities, hmm. and... Um, so, I think it's hard be- to acknowledge that I've grown as my brothers and sisters have been hurt, uh, specifically by my actions. It- it's-, it's kind of a hard question because I live in a majority culture that says to be labeled a racist is, is about the worst thing mm. that you could be called. Um, and yet, man, that's the only way I've grown. I've had people talk to me about issues of white privilege and racism, and I've gotten it on a cognitive level, but until I've actually made mistakes, Mm. um, I haven't seen the invisible backpack that I'm wearing of all my privileges and rights that that my non-white brothers and sisters around me see, um, but it's in those moments of failure that I say, wow, that thing's pretty heavy and pretty packed, isn't it? Um. And it leads me into the conversation with some humility um, and an understanding that God's at work. I think you, you mentioned one of the failures of our theology is that we're saved and then we go out. Right. You know, I think another failure of our theology is that we're immediately made perfect.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, we're, we're broken. We're here because we're broken and we're in need of a Savior again and again, and again, and my heart is broken as a sinner, but my eyes are broken because I see the world through the categories of majority culture, hmm. and I need Jesus to continually to do surgery on my eyes. Uh, my brain is broken in the sense that my mind categorizes things as my culture presents them, and Jesus is at work and the Spirit's at work breaking those up. Hmm. And the only way I've learned to do that is, is, is failure, just recently, I'm, I'm serving as chaplain at Trinity, and I was invited to speak at our, uh, our graduate residence life meetings. Uh, it's a time uh, they meet every week. Um, these are RAs for grad students. And I was asked to speak on the subject of maintaining a vital spiritual life while in the thick of studies and the thick of ministry to your peers. And I was about three-quarters of the way through talking about things that have been good for me. And my Chinese-American brother, and RAs says, Scott, can I jump in and just ask the non-whites here, um, how do they process this? And, um, and, and what are the ways that we process differently? And I nodded, but inside, I don't know how long this took. It felt like an eternity. I had these waves of emotions going through my head. First one was anger. Um, Patrick, I'm sorry. I was the one invited to speak. (laughs) Um, Not you. Um, And I quickly realized a lot of that anger was actually embarrassment, that I had been spending three-quarters of my time talking about spiritual development through my lens only. And I knew who was in this meeting, Finally, I got to a place of gratitude. Patrick, thank you for raising this issue. This is exactly what should have been on my radar, but it wasn't. And I was able to grab him afterwards and thank him for that. And to say thank you, because without, without your question, we would have missed the mark significantly in this discussion. Um, so I think it's those opportunities of failure that allow me to see what is my privilege, It's a mirror that sits in front of me that says, you know, this is where God has redeemed, and this is the places God has yet to redeem. And so I can enter the discussion with a measure of humility and also hope that my role is sometimes to say I'm sorry for a number of things, um, but also to testify to the work of God um, in my life as he's continued to refine me.
0: Why do you think this work of racial reconciliation in the church is so difficult?
1: I I think it's a stronghold of the enemy. Um, I think the renewing, it's, you know, it gets at my issues of control, gets at my issues of identity. Yeah. It hits all of my weakest points uh-huh. for me, um, and it makes me trust God. Uh-huh. And I don't—I I give lip service to to that, uh-huh. um, but how often do I really trust God? Right. You know, and and it's a, it's it's. It's a process that's going to be messy, and I'm not going to look good, and I like to save face, and I like to be seen as having it all together. And to enter into this means my junk is going to be laid out in front of people that I don't trust as much as I say I do.
0: Yeah.
1: And, yeah. And so it, all my issues of trust, identity, sufficiency in Christ, it, it all comes. And, and, and I think the evil one springs on us at those points and causes division and says, "Wow, this is a great community. It has got great optics. Yeah That's enough. I wrestle with this as a chaplain. Man, I'd love to put together a worship that looks good, but am I putting together a worship team and a series that actually helps us bond together as a community and break down walls? Yeah. And I don't always know where that line is. Yeah. And when I miss it, I feel like the enemy jumps into that, that void yeah. and, and works.
0: We're going to continue the dialogue with Scott, but at this time, I'm going to ask those of you that I reached out to, to be a part of our panel, to come on up and join us. Yes, church, as they come up, please give them a warm welcome, okay? You and know, I, sit together right here. Reached out to these folks because they are uh, non-experts, I intentionally said, we don't want any experts uh, or people who feel like they've arrived, because none of us have. They are your friends, they are your community group leaders, they are people that you do ministry with, um, they are your brothers and your sisters. Um, what I'm going to do right now is real quickly just kind of have them introduce themselves to you, um, and you are welcome to say, woo, yay, or whatever, if they're your friends, Okay. This whole conversation, maybe it's just me, I, I'm just going to throw this out, maybe just me, but it's just, I just feel so heavy. It just, it's just a heavy topic, you know, and I've, I've just hated these Sundays for me personally because it's just so heavy, um, and, and, and the heaviness is going to be shared now with the rest of our, our brothers and sisters, so I'm going to start right here, and we're going to pass around our mics, we'll use both of these,
3: okay. Hi, I'm Lorena.
4: I am Tim. My name's Dusty.
5: My name's Kenny.
6: <laughs> My name is Ruth.
2: I'm Haley.
0: I'm Jen.
6: I'm Blessing.
0: So the way this is going to work is this, okay? Series of questions, and by the way, we're going to give you an opportunity to dialogue with us as well. Uh, I'm going to go and ask these questions, and we're not going to go just, you know, one at a time. I'm going to ask anybody that wants to jump in to say, can I have the mic, over and just jump right in. Uh, before you do, um, you've told us your name, but tell us a little bit sort of about your ethnic racial heritage, okay? And then uh, any other pertinent information that may go into um, what you want to talk about. So here's my first question. Here's my first question. We're just going to jump in. First question is, to you, what is racism? And how have you encountered racism? Um, And if you can be real specific, perhaps about most recent examples, um, that would be helpful. So,
6: Take it.
7: Thanks. Tim. Well, many times we, yeah, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Many times uh, oh, we think of racism just on a, uh, oh, yeah, oh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, like he said, I'm a black man. And, uh, yeah, I mean, briefly, yeah, the history of my people in this, in this country. Um, I have not been able to trace my family roots back to a specific tribe in Africa, but that's the history of my people uh, with uh, slave trade, being in this country uh, over centuries, and here I am. So that's my history, a black man. (laughs) (laughs) And so to answer the question of racism, what is it? Um, Many times we think of racism just on the individual level of personal prejudice, but uh, it goes to a whole new level it 's prejudice that also takes on a, a systemic form in terms of power so it 's uh, when personal prejudices uh, can now be integrated into a system that can control people 's lives uh, that uh, uh, graces or even benefits one group over another so in this case in our in our culture um, and we 'll probably talk about white privilege but that the system of racism that favors white people over all other people groups in which those people groups are oppressed. So, prejudice plus power. Thank you. Yeah,
4: I'll share a little bit. Um, I'm white, I don't know if you guys can tell, but um, I grew up in Iowa, which there are a lot of white people in Iowa. And uh, I went to a high school that, um, a high school of about 2,000 people, there were probably less than 20 non-white people in our high school, and so I grew up probably the first 24, 25 years of my life not really knowing that racism existed, like kind of hearing about it, but um, not ever experiencing it, um, not being introduced to it until really uh, experiences overseas that I experienced on mission trips and different things and kind of this issue of white privilege uh, experience in other countries. And so... um, not really until I moved to Chicago was was when I actually experienced kind of racism um, on a domestic level um, in in a lot of different ways, and I'm definitely still learning and how that actually plays out, but um, it's just a little bit. Okay.
0: Blessing.
6: I'm also a black woman, in case that wasn't obvious, um, but then what I'd add to that is I'm first generation um, my parents immigrated here from Nigeria. So mm. I think um, for me, uh, you know, that for some people that looks obvious. For others, I'm a black woman. But racism to me has looked like um, not having a nuanced perspective of what it can look like for someone to be black, like culturally, right? Mm. Um, as far as my experiences of racism, racism, I think it's looked like me being considered like more like a model minority. Mm. Um, so mm. this idea of like, oh yes, you're successful, but this is where your people come from, and so not having an expectation that success is something to be expected from Black people at large, and not just a segment of the Black population. So that's what it's looked like for me. Mm.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody else?
8: Uh, I'm Jen, and I too um, am a black woman, Uh, but I also have to give credit where credit is due because I'm adopted, Uh, my family is white, Emma's the only one who could come today, though. (laughs) she's our token, Um, but I know my biological mother, who's also white, um, and I was conceived, I don't think you know this, I was conceived by a rape, um, which didn't do a lot for race relations uh, within my biological mother's family. So uh, that's, uh, and that's something I've known since I was 26. So just kind of an interesting uh, phenomenon. So racism for me has been, though, very traditional American experience, and word um, a lot. Kind of a weird thing that's happening now. My husband, who's also black, who is was also biracial but not through adoption, we're having this weird idea that my children are 8 and 11, Um, By their age, the number of times I've been called the N-word is, who knows? I mean, who who keeps count? Um, They've never heard it. They don't know about it. And a bunch of black friends, my husband and I have talked about it. It's so weird that in 2013, we're trying to decide. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But in 2013, we have a choice to decide who's going to, when do we tell them? Both of us, by their age, had already heard it, been called it. So it's a weird thing, and um, because some of the things coming up in um, my family right now, it's pushing the issue. Um, but they don't—they don't even know the phrase "the N word," so it's bizarre.
0: Mm.
9: Um, I think racism for me. Um, I, I four years ago I did this program called Mission Year, which is like a, basically immerses you into under under-resourced, under-resourced neighborhood um, along with a team of people. And that experience talked about race a lot. And so my, um, my director actually asked me at the beginning of the year, like, how I had experienced racism. And I looked at him, and I was like, well, my brother kind of experienced it because he was called all sorts of things. But I don't know if I have. Um, and that was kind of, like, the indicator for me kind of on how much I grew my understanding of what racism was um, throughout the year. Because throughout the year, I realized that racism isn't just um, hate crimes or prejudice, but it is a system. It is this this reality of what's going on in in society. And so, um, things like, for me, just really processing racism is, like, things that exist. Um, For example, like, why is it that when I was younger, I didn't, I always thought of myself as white, or I didn't like my eyes, or I didn't like the fact that we were Chinese, or I didn't like my food. Um... Another thing is, like, I recently had a discussion with um, a, all white brothers and sisters um, about race, actually. And one of the people that um, men talked was kind of like, why, are we, why do we keep talking about this? Like, why does it really matter? And so I actually asked everyone in the group, like, if you're to come right now, think of five, if you are think of five words for your identity, what things you identify with, you know, mother or, you know, I'm woman or whatever. Think of those five things. And I gave him a pause for just like a couple of seconds, and I said, um, I want you guys to raise your hand at this point, point. in those five things that you just mentioned, if race was one of those things, raise your hand. Um, and only a few of us, and I, only me and a couple other people who are just kind of used to this conversation raise their hand, and everyone else in the room didn't raise their hand because race wasn't a big deal for them. So I think it's just this idea that um, people of color think about race all the time, and why is that? And I think that's, that's kind of a byproduct of racism.
5: Uh, My name's Kenny. I'm Japanese-American. My grandparents, one set of my grandparents met in internment camp, and so my family, the Japanese population from my family, came to Chicago post-World War II, Mm. Um, and so I identify myself as more, I guess, white growing up um, and not really knowing a lot of Japanese culture. Uh, I think about racism, I became a teacher right out of college, and I had a a multi-ethnic I guess a black and white student population. And I think it was in those first couple of years that race began to hit me in the face. And it became an introspective time where I began to think about the frustrations that I was feeling and the experiences that I was feeling, even culturally, how to interact with uh, students of color. And I began to question... Well, And and of course, I got called a racist. Um, And of course, I said, I'm not racist. Um, But... at, through, the, through the course of teaching, those first few years, I began to open the door to say to myself, am I racist? Do I have prejudices that I don't want to admit? Because it's not a fun thing to say, it's not a fun thing to admit, uh, but to to be honest with those conversations with myself, and to give myself that freedom to think about those things, and not feel uh, ashamed, or yeah, think of myself in the way that I think of other racist people, but just to begin to have that conversation with myself.
0: Let me ask this question. What does racial reconciliation look like, both at the individual level, or personal, and then corporate, or systemic level? What does racial reconciliation look like, both at the individual, personal level, and then also corporate, systemic? Because I hear a lot of you guys, and your sharing is about the systemic issues. So, so talk a little bit about how how, 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 when we talk about racial reconciliation, it's both of those. And how, how do you see your role? How do you see the church's role in that? Lorena.
3: Um, I'm Lorena, and I first want to first describe a little bit of sure, sure. Um, the first question. I um, was born in Mexico, so I'm first generation. And growing up, I think I experienced racism first through myself, um, because I didn't want to be Mexican, I wanted to be like everybody else, um, or the privileged um, in the city, which were unfortunately um, white, so I wanted to be everything that had to do with that and nothing to do with being Mexican. Um, and it wasn't until later on, maybe in my late teens, early 20s, where um, God blessed me with the opportunity to be in programs and in a church like this where um, there is a ton of different skin colors and backgrounds, whether it be financial or um, different levels of of Christianity. Um, And experiencing racial reconciliation, um, for me, has been such a blessing. Um, I have had... um, issues with being Mexican and um, it wasn't until somebody that looks different than me thought it was cool for me to be Mexican and they wanted to learn about um, making tamales or um, how we spend our Christmas or what do we do for Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving is not a Mexican holiday but we still celebrate it. Um, And So for personal, racial reconciliation has been people in my life opening up, um, Mm. not just um, their homes and their lives to me, but also wanting to be involved in my life and my family and um, caring about what it means to be an immigrant, what it means to be Mexican, what it means um, to... To be a Christian who is an immigrant and is Mexican, um, Mm -hmm. in a city like Chicago. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, Jen.
8: Rachel, reconciliation for me is—I struggled with that question when you sent it Um, because it doesn't fully resonate with me. I think of um, the first thing that comes to mind of recent. I think of you know Senator John Lewis, who was a freedom rider, who, in exiting the bus at a train station was attacked and not protected by the police. Um, in recent years, one of those police officers has gone to him, badge in hand, and mm-hmm. said, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. I failed to do my job, mm-hmm. which is to serve and protect. I failed professionally. I failed personally. Mm-hmm. I failed as an American. Um, and that's a bit how I felt, too, when you were running the the tweets mm. when Miss America won. Yeah. Um, I was pissed <laughs> seeing some of that. I wanted to cry. But it was because as an American, it was a embarrassing. Even with our history, I just wanted to hang my head in shame. Um, But, you know, looking at, and I, you know, I'm a black American, but I only am an expert in my personal experience. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I grew up in a white family, and as a baby, it's all I've known. My oldest brother and I are probably closest. He's eight years older, and he has said to me through the years that we've talked about race, one, I realized I had to, Um, I was called nigger sister when I was six years old by a boy in the playground, my brother's, my younger, older brother's friend who punched him. I'd never heard his first hearing the word. And I just remember thinking, John is going to get a lot of trouble for hitting because that was wrong. I didn't know. I knew it was bad, like the F word, the S word. Um, and he's the only one in my family to witness me being called the N word or any racial injustice. Um, and so Jeff and I have talked, because he said, you know, I just assume it happens, um, but I've never seen it. He's like, you know, you're just Jenny. You're my younger sister. You were annoying. Get out of my room. Stay out of my clothes. <laughs> Leave me alone. I have friends over. Go away. Um, so I appreciate the sentiment behind that. But yeah. I know in work, he has said, yeah, racial stuff comes up, and he's so disgusted, he walks yeah. away. Yeah. And... Martin Luther King, among many, has said sometimes the greater betrayal is silence. Yeah. And so I've been challenging my older brother. My parents, this is not an issue. Like, God help you if you commit any, any injustice. <laughs> any like, you'll have to dodge them. Um, and so a challenge for him is he is so disgusted. He wants to disengage and basically yeah. cut that person off. Yeah. And I, you yeah. do a disservice. Yeah. And yeah. you don't help me even if I have to put in that context, but don't do it because I'm your black sister. Do it because it's wrong. Yeah, It's just wrong. Um, but that was how I was raised, is it's, it's hard to find good people. I can't really care about what color they are. Yes. Um, it, but that has never resonated with me. But I also grew up in Chicago, so I saw a lot of that. But I think at a corporate level... Um, You have to say something, and if you're fired for it, then that's not where God means for you to be, or maybe you challenge that system. Um, Mm. On an individual level, Mm. it's really hard because I don't... I've never been called the N-word by anybody, I guess, who mattered to me, so it didn't really hurt, so it's a weird thing. I just hate it. Um, But, yeah, so I think that silence is unacceptable to me.
2: Hmm. Um, hi i'm actually biracial so i'm half korean half caucasian Um, my dad is korean and i think um, well i grew up in the northwest suburbs in a very primarily white um, area and um, i think for a long time you know i thought you know, I, I didn't grow up hearing the idea idea of racial reconciliation, but um, from my household and from what I saw, you know, I just thought it was something that you weren't really supposed to talk about, um, and it was something that you didn't acknowledge, and we could just get, all get along and ignore the whole um, racial aspect of our identities, like that was, um, that was good, and mm-hmm. that was, um, you know, the, the idea of colorblindness that Pastor mm-hmm. Peter's been talking about, and so when I came into um, college and, you know, was more involved in the church and people started talking about racial reconciliation and started talking about race and it was really hard for me and I was just like, why are we talking about this? And it causes so many problems and um, I felt like it was um, it was going against everything that I had grown up thinking. Um, and so, you know, as I was thinking about this question of what is racial reconciliation this week, I, I, I related it a lot to my relationship with the Lord. And just recognizing, you know, to be reconciled with God requires this state of repentance, of recognizing, um, you know, my sins and my wrongs before stepping into this renewed effort at relationship with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I think in the same way in my relationships with other people, there's this stage of recognizing the hurts and the wounds and the wrongs um, that have been done um, before you can really step into that um, reconciled relationship with other people.
1: Thank you. I mm. think for, um, for me, I'm Scott, again. For, for me, um, one aspect of racial reconciliation is consistent engagement mm. because for, for me I think the heart of white privilege is the ability to pull out of the discussion mm. at any time I choose. Mm. And I have played that card <laughs> when it got hard. Um, I have, and I've seen my brothers and sisters play the card of, you're right, I'm a horrible person, I apologize, and, and I'm using it not as repentance, but I'm using it as disengagement,
6: mm-hmm.
1: and then I'm just going to extract myself, I'm going to go living the way I used to live, and it's going to come onto my radar screen when it does, and then when it doesn't, I'm going to live my normal life. And for me, God continues says call, calls me to engagement, consistent engagement on a relational level. Mm-hmm. You're my friend. Mm-hmm. Can we let's continue to figure out our relationship? Let's continue to love one another. Let's continue to wrestle with the messiness. And I think on a systematic level of naming things when I see them, mm-hmm. um, so that maybe my brother or my sister doesn't have to be labeled the angry whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, where I can maybe I can step in and if I see something I can name it um, and to do that consistently and not have this one foot in one foot out, mm. which is so tempting because it gets hard and it, I get tired, but man, my brothers and sisters have it hard all the time and they get tired consistently and that isn't an option for them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but it's an option for me and I not, I need not to take it.
0: Mm. Anybody else? Yeah. Ruth.
9: I think on an individual level, yeah. um, I mean, I'm just so happy to see, even though they look out like everyone's here, like even in the midst of this hard sermon series, like people who keep coming back. Yeah. I think that says a lot about, like, I can kind hear of, you're going kind of sharing, like, I think recreational celebra- uh, reconciliation is kind of like stepping into the hurt, sitting with that un unjoyful tension, but then through that, you also experience the joy, right? We all seen those pictures of, like, People of different races holding hands, and you're just kind of cringe at that picture. But why is that? It's because it's not a really full picture of reconciliation, right? Yeah. We're willing to take in all the happiness, the joyful feelings, but not willing to walk with our brothers and sisters in the pain. Yeah. And so I think being d- diverse and being of different races, it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a really painful thing. So I think walking into that in an individual conversation is, means like, hey, I want to hear your pain. Like, even if your your story kind of makes me feel uncomfortable, I want to welcome that. But I also want to welcome this journey. I want to walk with you through that. Yeah. I think even on a corporate level, um, that program I was telling you about, guys, about Mission Year, I actually am on staff with them now. So I think I was leading a group in worship and actually... Um, uh, Lettuce song in Spanish Even though I'm not good at Spanish um, But one of the people who came up afterward Was kind of like Hey That was really meaningful to me I, I cried Because that was kind of That's my heart language And I've never been in a, a Congregation that With other people who aren't You know me- She was uh, Mexican um, That don't That sing that And um, I think just I think corporately That means like hey, allowing someone who is often mis- underrepresented or isn't given that voice to be like, hey, your voice is really important. Your culture is really important. We want to integrate that. And not only do we want to do it as an add-on, it's like we actually really need that culture and your your background. Yeah. So I think just, I mean, I think part of it is just changing the perspective of like, not like, oh, it'd be nice to have this, but like, hey, I really need you. Um, I think systemically, I think it's like this movement of like bringing awareness, reading books, talking conversations, and kind of constantly digging into that tension and joy, tension and joy, um, and being willing to, and it's a marathon. I think racial reconciliation is a marathon. Thank you.
6: Um, I think for me, I think about the individual level and have just been struggling to kind of get out of this place uh, through the sermon series of feeling like um, this doesn't feel as new, right? So, um, and I, you know, was dialoguing with Pastor Peter about it and maybe feeling like um, I could use more compassion for those of my brothers and sisters who are in this place where they're kind of starting to question. And Mm -hmm. I think for me it means that I need to be patient enough and um, care enough to be Mm -hmm. willing to engage. Um, And I think just on an individual level, like I think my tendency would be to disengage or disconnect from those folks that... um, exhibit or say things that I just am like, I'm not down with that. So obviously we have nothing in yeah, common, yeah. right? And so the people in my life who are part of a majority group, they feel like they're feel they people that I feel like get it. But then um, I just kind of cut off the others. Yeah. And so I think um, being willing to be uncomfortable to um, have cover- care enough to bother to um, bring things to people's attention, um, as well as be humble enough to like, actually care yeah, um, is something that I need to work on.
5: Yeah. Echoing a lot of what has been shared, I, I guess I'll just share a, a personal story of mine. Um, so as I learn like thinking about my own racist, racism and seeing racism as a teacher uh, and reflecting on the, the racism that I had received as a Japanese-American, I think the strongest... Memory that I have came at the hands of a Korean American. Uh, And so it's funny, one Asian to another, I felt racism because there's not a lot of Japanese Americans in Chicago. So I feel very alone here in Chicago, or at least at my school. Um, But I was, as a teacher, I reflected back and I remembered, man, in sixth grade, my school in Skokie was very diverse. But when we had one African American student come into our school, I mean, she was cool and she became, you know, she's. She was in sixth grade. I mean, she, we made friends with her. We were very friendly. But at one point, we, there was a song that came out on the radio, and then we just kind of were teasing her about it. And in our minds, we are just teasing her about it until one day she started crying and ran off the playground. And then we're all like, Whoa, well, that wasn't good. Um, but I remember that years later. And so maybe 12 years later after the fact, as a teacher, I, I was reflecting. I'm like, man, I'm really sorry for that moment. And, and the pain that she must have felt and I think, I think empathizing with other people and understanding the moments that we've had that have been hurtful and understanding that other people might have more experiences like that than, than, we, than we do. And as we all know, when we're hurt, we don't forget those moments. We don't forget those words. And so as I, I think racial reconciliation not, is also a personal for me to forgive the people and the people group that hurt me and to, um, and to want to love and embrace. Uh, but also, I was at, had the opportunity, I ran into her at the bank 10, 12 years later, mm. and I said, Dorian, I'm just really, you know, we're chatting, we're both teachers now, and I'm like, mm. you know, I see as a teacher the ugliness that my students have towards one another, and it, hurt, it breaks my heart. And I just want, I remember, and I want to say I'm sorry for the ways that we treated you in sixth grade, and she didn't say, oh, what are you talking about? Oh, totally, for, you know, in high school we all became friends, no big deal. But she just said, thank you for saying that. Mm. And it, it reminded me that the hurt and the pain that we carry, it doesn't go away. And so I think being aware of that and being, having the opportun- taking advantage of opportunities uh, to say I'm sorry and the humility to admit that so that healing can take place on my, on my end and on her end as well.
0: Church, we don't have a ton of time, but we do want to open up the floor to the church family at large. No long lectures, no long sermons. Stand up and share your experience. We'll run out with the mic so everybody could hear you when we could record this. Yes, somebody. Did I see? Him? No. Okay. No. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff will be our runner with the mic.
4: Thanks. Thank you. Actually, I have another question. Just, Peter, in your sermon series, you addressed, like, racism and dealing with your family, kind of open to the panel, how have you, in not being silent with family members, family gatherings, dealt with um, standing up for racial reconciliation, things like that?
0: Yes, as we have Thanksgiving coming up, we all have those interactions with that family member. Anybody want to speak on that, in terms of how you've gone about interacting with a family member? Crazy Uncle Bob, a Grandpa Tom, or maybe Mom or Dad about this issue. Yeah, Haley.
2: Um, so, like I said, my dad's Korean, and I've actually been surprised that that's where I've heard the most like racist comments growing up, um, because my dad experienced that a lot of a, a lot of racism immigrating from Korea when he was in middle school, um, and so. I had a conversation with my dad just last summer. I was home, and we had dinner and my dad mentioned how he had just a really negative experience um, with an African American man when he was in the Marine Corps and he was just talking about how that he's like this one guy just ruined it you know for everybody else and like just was making assumptions about everybody else from that race and like he was like i you know if I had to hire someone or Blah, 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 And I was just like, Dad, you can't say that. You can't do that. Um, and we got into this whole conversation about it. And, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure I handled it correctly, but I was just so appalled that, like, my own father um, would not only, would, like, openly say that, you know, and because I appreciated what you said, Jeff. Is it Jeff? Ken? Um, just, you know, you have those thoughts, Um, And you have these assumptions that were ingrained in you growing up. Um, But to have, you know, my dad openly say that and openly be prejudiced and and claiming that he would act that way was just really shocking. Um, And, you know, I just, I think I I tried to just explain to him, um, you know, my dad's not Christian, so you kind of have to take the more, like, politically correct route or just try to, you know tell him my experiences of just, you know, how would, how I've experienced people of all different races and ethnicities, and you can't just make a judgment, um, or a call, um, based on one person, um, but I think it's, I don't know, I think, I think it was, it was a difficult conversation, I don't know if I have a conclusion for you, because I don't know if I answered, I, I handled the conversation correctly, but I think, like, I'm learning how to stand up for that in my own family when it was something that I just grew up hearing um, up until, you know, my time being in college.
9: Yeah, thank you, Aileen.
7: Well, I'll just answer this question yeah. ahead. quickly. Um, just knowing myself, how my parents taught me, um, especially with who I would marry, uh, would be a woman who loves God and loves me. And uh, that was the only criteria. And so my wife, beautiful wife, Christy, she's white. And uh, we have beautiful children. And uh, so we deal with our own tensions as far as family. Um, I think um, I think my family has always been cool. I think maybe it's more uh, things that might go unsaid for some family members. Um, and so they might just talk about, superficial things oh look at how curly their hair is or this and that but sometimes i can sense that maybe there's some discomfort there not wanting to say what they really feel uh i do see that i was actually surprised when i like met her dad because he was on the side of um you know being one of the people that's you know has spent a lifetime challenging white privilege and engaging in those conversations with um other uh black men that he's been spent a lifetime doing ministry with. And so, I mean, that was a blessing uh encountering that with him. Um I think Christy's got some other family members that um I, I think they're not, they're not sure how to engage me, not sure how to engage the issue. So everything like I said, I can tell is is more superficial to a degree um but but there's still something there that's like so, so they would be ones to, to fight the, the racist sort of uh, label, uh, but I can tell there's discomfort there, and, and I think eventually uh, maybe some of those conversations uh, we'll have, I mean, you know, some family members who are straight Republican and, you know, they have certain views and just don't come right out with it, but I think we'll have those conversations.
9: I think Trevor, that's a really good question. I think it's really hard, and I don't—definitely not an expert at that—with um, family or friends. But I think um, I have a story. I think my family comes from a background where they are—they have a lot of deep um, prejudice toward the Black community, and I think like part of kind of fighting that has has been things like when things are said, calling it out, like, I don't think I should say that, or that's not, right? But also sharing really amazing experiences to counter what um, they believe or the assumptions that they have and kind of sharing experiences that are like, hey, that's not true because I experienced this. Um, and I think for me has been remembering, um, I think one of this girl, Jeannie, actually said something about like, when you just, even when you speak up against something, like just saying like, hey, that's not okay, that even just putting the like, what is it called, like, the path of resistance, like, creating a path of resistance. Um, I think, like, sometimes I just hate being that girl that's always being, like, becoming... I guess seeing in my family, like, I don't want to be that person, like, oh, Ruth is going to bring that up again. But I think, like, that process has... um, has actually brought up a lot of great things Um, like a couple years ago at the end of the program when I was living on the south side my parents came to visit and there was this picture, it's just just like bizarre like my immigrant family in an all black church with ladies with big hats we're in a missionary Baptist church (laughs) and we're just seeing worship together and that would have never happened before and I think like, I think through that experience God reminded me that yeah, racial reconciliation is a marathon and it's also, we're relationship building, right? We're relationship building and journey with people who may not really get it yet or really see it the way I may see it but we're in this relationship and like it's going to take time or maybe like I think sometimes I go in a conversation being like having a crusade like mentality like I got to change the person's mind right here right now but it's a relationship and it's a process thank you
0: Mike
5: hi yeah I got a question um thank you all for sharing your stories um especially about um racism on the level between minority groups on an individual level but can anybody kind of speak to what that might look like for you guys that you've seen on a systemic level especially because we've talked a lot about the majority to minority dynamic but between minority groups especially how do you guys kind of see that on a more systemic basis Um, I'm holding the mic.
6: <laughs>
5: <laughs> it's, it's easy to say, I'm Japanese American. What happened in World War II in Asia, in my mind, I wasn't a part of that. And I think it's funny how racism is a part of within Asian cultures that one of the first things that I tell all the Asians out there is that I'm Japanese American. was. My grandparents were here in World War II, so the racism that your grandparents feel towards Japanese people, I wasn't a part of it, so please don't hate me. Please don't <laughs> think bad things of me. And when your grandparents meet me, tell them I was, you know. <laughs> and for those that are not aware, and I wasn't aware of this until college, is that the Japanese military did a tr- uh, tremendously horrible things to Asia, to China, to Korea, and even now they're They're trying to, you know, in Japan, it came out that they don't even teach that in the element in in the Japanese schools of all the the terrible things that Japan has done, Um, and they're like, yeah, they're being they're revising history in Japan for their own sake, and to so I want to say that I wasn't a part of that, Um, but then also to repent on behalf of, yeah, my people that we did atrocious things in Asia during the time of World War II, and there there is deep seated. Systemic racial tensions that will play out for me if I go meet someone's grandparents today. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I I I haven't done much with it, but to say that there are areas for re- racial reconciliation amongst Asian countries.
4: Yeah.
0: One more person. Want to wrap it up? Yes.
2: Um. So I have a two-year-old son, and my perspective in the past two years has become very different. Uh, And one of the biggest struggles with me is coming over my education. Um, When we go to schools, we learn history from one perspective. And so one of my biggest challenges in being a parent is teaching him how to look at something from multiple perspectives and understand that not one perspective is right. Mm -hmm. So I know a few of you are parents up there, and I wanted to hear your experiences of how you teach your children.
0: Great question. Jennifer. Jennifer. Tim, Uh,
8: yeah, I don't. It's tricky for me to answer because I, um, I was never taught about race. I didn't see how I looked different from my family walking down the street. I don't walk with a mirror in front of us, and I do double takes at multiracial families, even though I come from one, because I don't see myself. Um, My kids go to French school, uh, and and it's weird because a lot of um, most of the black families there are either come from Haiti or France or overseas, and then we're American. They're like, why are you here? Um, and so um, you'd be amazed, though, what children don't see. It is learned, and it's not just learned from the books. It's learned from who they socialize with. Um, my oldest daughter asked me, why are we brown people? Um, and it's got to be weird for her, because I know my biological mom. My husband's father, um, I obviously don't know my biological father, um, my husband's father was, was black. He's passed away. So she knows my, they know my parents, my husband's parent, my husband's mom, and uh, my biological mom, all of whom are white. And so she finally asked him. She's like, why are we brown? Like, why are we black? <laughs> I was like, I guess that would be a disconnect. Um, where does that come from? But they just don't... Um, You'd also be amazed at what they don't pick up from the textbooks as well. So that can be a good thing. I highly recommend the Idiot's Guide to American History. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a lot more accurate, um, but not an easy. It's an adult read for sure. Um, But I think that you can do your best as a parent. Your kids will. That's why we worry about peer pressure. Because you can teach, you know, a loving, good Christian home and go and pick your kid up from jail someday. Um, so it doesn't always, you know, you try to choose your friends wisely. I think having open dialogue, um, I am most amazed about what my children and their friends don't see. And um, we were talking about somebody who is Asian. Oh, we were talking about <laughs> Well, we were talking about our, like, our pastoral, because well, our, pa- our, our pastors at this church are not often what you see, not only in the covenant church. It, it was a larger conversation. But they couldn't even point out what made Peter Asian. They, it was like, is it, was it his hair? Um, they could not describe how he looked different mm. from us. And... Because Anna is pretty sure Pastor Peter and her are the same color. Um, they might be. So it's, I mean, it's interesting. So I will say it's learned. And it's not always learned in, the, in academics. Um, and, but you will be amazed. Racism is learned. It's not inherent.
0: Do you want to share?
7: Okay, briefly, at least for Christian and I, raising our children, uh, one, I guess the motto my dad always taught me is to really know your history, son, uh, know your, your black roots. And so I think that's where I would start, uh, as far as teaching our children the history. Uh, and of course they're growing up in a family where they, you know, they got a black mom, a uh, black dad and a white mom. And, you know, uh, so they're seeing that and, you know, they're, you know, making little observations, you know, uh. So BJ starts telling me, you know, Daddy, you have, Daddy, you like chocolate, you know. So those <laughs> kinds of, um, you know, so they're making those observations. For me, I think about, and, and they're growing up in a diverse community. That's how I grew up. Uh, I grew up in Waukegan, which is, is, is black, it's white, it's Hispanic, predominantly Hispanic, uh, uh, Spanish-speaking. So I think that's, Chrissy also grew up in uh, where she had a diverse uh, group of friends around her. So I think we both have had that experience and we want to teach our children the importance of that. So we teach, there are other things that we do as far as them learning words in Spanish, other things uh, that that we also want to expose them to. And and so the friendships that we have around us. But yeah, it's really teaching the history, it's teaching the truth too, that yeah, people are going to, you look different and people are going to treat you that way. And it's really being honest, so not teaching a a, a sort of wishy-washy, watered down sort of, Truth and you know, nothing matters because honestly, we live in a culture where how you look does matter, and so I think it's being real about that, and uh, but then also coming back to the gospel and teaching like that what God has called us to. So I think that's the main thing. Yeah.
0: Can we give these guys a big hand, you guys? <laughs> Thank you.